2: down.
1: We'll here on to welcome to the Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you haven't listened to the show before, hey, welcome aboard. And if you have listened to the show before, you know the show is in a couple of parts. The first part, we usually talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court. And right now, it's extremely important to avoid going through court because the courts are not really fully open. I don't know what's going to happen, but I doubt if they're going to be fully up to speed for quite a while. And the third part is elder law. Mostly, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. We're going to talk about that, you know, today. Uh, We're going to have our old friend Tony LoBianco on and former police commissioner of Westchester County, arthur dallas meanwhile we're gonna let's shift to estate planning and we have one of our attorneys again here with us i think she's been on the show a couple of times nicole donnelly welcome to the show
3: hello hello thank you for having me again
1: okay nicole tell the audience something about yourself where'd you go to law school where'd you grow up
3: i grew up in brooklyn new york all of my life until about two years ago when i decided to move to staten island which i do love despite everybody else not loving it And I went to law school at Toro Law, where I clerked in the court across the street and had a really good time, despite what everybody else says about law school as well.
1: Okay, well, here's the thing, you know, like, why would you want to move to Staten Island if you were in Brooklyn? But that's besides the point.
3: Because Staten Island is where it is. It's up and coming. It's trendy. I enjoy it. Everybody from Brooklyn has already moved there. And now we have- What do you mean everybody
1: met. in Brooklyn has moved there?
3: A lot of people on my block are from Brooklyn originally. So all the kids playing are playing like when I was growing up in Brooklyn. In the middle of the street, taking down cars, telling us to slow down. You know, they <laughs> own the street, the kids. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what? let's get to the question of the day anyway.
3: Okay. So here it is. Mr. Connors, my father is in serious need of nursing home care. However, his pension income is too high for Medicaid, but too low for nursing home costs. Is there anything our family can do?
1: Yeah, that's really not a problem. Um, Income is not a problem in getting Medicaid in New York State. I mean, if you're going for home care, which it says too high for not enough, too high for home care, what did it say?
3: Too high for Medicaid in general. Medicaid
1: in general. Okay, let's. Let's go back too high for Medicaid in general. Well, in home care Medicaid, community Medicaid, you can put your excess income in a pooled income trust, and that way you qualify for Medicaid. If you go to a nursing home, and I'm going to assume in this case that your father does not have a wife, does not have a spouse, um, basically it's not a problem getting Medicaid, but you lose all his income to the nursing home. So he can apply for nursing home Medicaid. Let's say the bill at the nursing home is $15,000 a month and his income is $5,000 a month, I mean, yeah, it's a shame to lose that income, and we may want to look at home care if possible, but it's not a problem applying for Medicaid. Medicaid, the nursing home, would just basically bill his income. Take his income is, is probably you know, not the right way to, to, to phrase it. They'll bill his income, and the rest will be picked up by Medicaid. So if he has $5,000 a month income, his nursing home bill is 15000 a month, they'll bill him his 5000 and they'll put the rest of the bill for medicaid and the medicaid will pay at the approved rate you know depending on what the nursing home rates are um but here's one other thing if you know your father's married his spouse would be entitled to a certain amount of support to take her you know at least to $3000 a month income so that's the other thing let's say his income is 5000 a month and he has a wife who stayed at home and didn't um doesn't have high earnings on social security or pension she has a $1000 a month income well he can apply for medicaid and she would get roughly $2000 a month from his income that could be used to support her and and here's one of the questions things sometimes get a little complicated you know where we can't just you know um say yes no this is where maybe you want to come in we'll disc- will schedule a conversation We'll get all the facts and try to give you a plan based on all the facts that are in front of us. And Connors & Sullivan, we don't charge by the hour as far as estate planning. The first consultation is free on anything that we're talking about as far as estate planning and elder law. And then we take it from there. We get your financial situation, your family situation, what you want to accomplish, what your goals are. And they give you a plan based on that. And everything we do as far as estate planning on elder law is in a flat fee basis. So you leave and you pretty well know what it's going to cost you if you want to go ahead. And if you want to schedule a a call, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, Michael, where does somebody write us another email question if they want? If you want to write us an email question, you can reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com, Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. All right, and getting back to Nicole um, you live in Staten Island. Obviously, we got a lot of people that are dog lovers. I understand you own some dogs.
3: Well, the dogs are a big part of what makes Staten Island great. There's a lot more land there than there was in Brooklyn when I was living here. So I have two pit bulls. They have, you have a- what? Two pit bulls.
1: Two pit bulls.
3: Yes, I see the face of judgment. Do I- not judge. They are amazing dogs. Need to follow Pipples daily on Instagram.
1: Don't, don't don't like they bite your arm and never let go until you're they're dead or you're dead?
3: I hear that about cats, that they're very aggressive. <laughs> my pit bulls not so bad. They do not bite my arm. They've never bit my arm. And like I said, I see some people who work here with cat war stories more than I have dog war stories.
1: I have never heard any cat war stories.
3: I've heard like three. And I'm a veteran. I've been here for 10 months. You need to listen out more. They're here. They're crawling around.
1: Okay. I, I'm sorry. I've never heard any cat stories, but I've heard the pit bull. I see it in the news all the time.
3: They're harmless. They're basically an imitation of their owner, I should say. Pretty harmless. Wouldn't you call me pretty harmless? I
1: guess so. <laughs> so, you know, here's... Well, I, I'm not going to ask how many weapons, how many rifles you have at home, but...
3: No discussions needed.
1: Okay. Now, you know, and here's one of the things that occasionally comes up. If you have a pet, if you have a dog, you have a cat, sometimes when you're making your plans up, you want, may want to think about who's going to take care of that dog, who's going to take care of that cat. Because, you know, a, a lot of times if you don't have a clear plan, the pets might be euthanized if we don't have a, a clear plan in place. And that's one of the things we can accomplish with an estate plan. You know, who's going to take care of the pet? Where is the money going to come to take care of the pets? And that's sometimes where we have an animal companion trust, where we set some money aside. So, and and this is, I I think, a good, a good result in some cases. We put some money aside so that maybe the pet can be given to some senior citizen who may not be quite able to afford taking care of the pet, but we can have some money set aside to help take care of the pet. And in that way, the senior citizen can take care of the pet and hopefully, you know, we have a plan that that helps everybody, gives you peace of mind, make sure we have a plan for the pet and at the same time, take care of the pet, you know, because I I know a lot of people, you know, the pets are very important to them, um, especially people who have dogs. There's some people who are very concerned about their cats.
3: I don't know if I recommend my particular dogs for any senior citizen, but well, you got
1: pit bulls. I don't know what. We're... Well, hopefully you don't need an estate plan right away, but nonetheless, you should have something in place for your pit bulls because who's going to want to take a pit bull if they don't get money?
3: Everybody, because they are amazing breed. Amazing. May I add again? What about your dog, Mr. Connors? Don't you have a dog?
1: Yeah, we have a dog. We have a schnauzer named Otto. Everybody on the show has heard Otto bark.
3: Otto does bark while you're on the show.
1: Yeah, Michael. Plenty of times, plenty (laughs) of times. And, you know, one of the good things for for a senior citizen, there there are several good things about it. First off, they're small, so they're relatively easy to manage. Second off, they are like walking alarms. That means, you know, if somebody unfriendly comes up to you, you're ten times less likely to be robbed if somebody thinks there's a dog there setting off the alarm and thirdly they're hypoallergenic so you've got three very good reasons that a mini schnauzer could be excellent for companions for senior citizens and they're extraordinarily loyal
3: i definitely recommend the mini schnauzer over the pitbull <laughs> <Well,
1: laughs> i don't, least I don't for even know seniors. i think I, I think otto's closer to a standard schnauzer i know he's in between <laughs> yeah he's he's a little big for his size but yeah you know but that that is one thing about otto if you come near our house he's barking at you So that's, you can't, whether it's good or bad, whether it's the happy bark, he he recognizes your smell, or whether he's just carrying alert or two danger. (laughs) You know, he has three different kinds of barks, depending on that. So I guess, yeah, I I would say our house is probably three times more secure having auto inside barking and when somebody approaches our house than not. But we do have a trust in place for Otto. So if anybody's asking me that question, because sometimes people ask me these questions, oh, you talk about pet trust, do you have a pet trust for Otto? Yes, we do have a pet trust for Otto. Well, we're going to take a short break. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer, now accompanied by Nicole.
3: As always, it's a pleasure to be on the show.
1: You know, and here's one other thing, Nicole. I forgot your name's Nicole Donnelly, but you do speak Spanish.
3: Yes, I do. I am half Colombian and half Irish. My dad, obviously Irish. That's how I got the Donnelly. But as people say, I do look very Colombian.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Nicole.
0: If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
1: Frank Melia, NMLS number
4: 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank and MLS number
1: 403503. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, you know, a lot of things have been going on as far as law enforcement, police, Black Lives Matter, so forth and so on. So we brought one of our friends in to to comment a little bit, Arthur Dallas. Arthur, welcome to Connors Corner. Thank you very much. Can you tell the audience your background?
4: Well, I'm a third-generation New York City policeman. I'm now retired. I started my career in New York City in 1964 with the uh, then Tactical Patrol Force. After approximately four months, I was assigned to the commissioner's office for the investigation of organized crime. Kind of odd because they couldn't have selected anyone more naive than myself. I was sent to schools to learn about gambling. Sounds like a benign issue today, but gambling and the proceeds from it would be difficult to exaggerate. It was the backbone for organized crime for all of these many years, primarily because it was monopolized. It was somewhere in, we'll say, the city of New York. It would be under the leadership of a family, one of the five families. And from there, I learned the trade, if you will, of investigating gambling.
1: Let me ask you something. A lot of people would say or did say back then, I think probably would say, well, gambling is a a victimless crime. What would you say?
4: Well, that's the whole point. It sounds benign. There are so many people involved in the gambling, but the proceeds, as I said, are so vast that it would be difficult to exaggerate the amount of money on a regular basis coming in. And of course, that money is used to as the backbone, as I mentioned, of the organized crime families. You could take at that time narcotics and loan sharking, uh, burglaries, armed robberies, uh, whatever else the organized crime may have been involved in altogether couldn't compare to the annual take of the gambling. Again, it's steady, it's monopolized, it's dependable. So it was a victimless crime in a in a strange way, we had plenty of victims. Legitimate businesses would be taken over because of maybe a loan shark problem or a loan that they had, had inadvertently made. And overnight, that business is now into the clutches of organized crime. This was very common in in all of the boroughs, certainly a very, very common in lower Manhattan and in, in Brooklyn.
1: So, okay, so you were... What what, what other parts?
4: Well, of... I was promoted to uh, sergeant. I started working as a rookie sergeant in uh, the 4-4 section of the Bronx, a precinct known as High Bridge. <clears throat> it was extraordinarily <clears throat> volatile at that time. There were two reasons for the Bronx, primarily uh, the, uh, the Bronx failure at that time. That would be Co-op City and the Cross Bronx Expressway, those areas were cut right through that Cross Bronx Expressway, cut right through very solid neighborhoods, and the people that could afford it moved to the Co-op City. Those that were left were either very poor or very old, so the violence in that area was uh, skyrocketed within a very brief period of time. I was uh, sent back to the police commissioner's office. I spent four years investigating police corruption. That was the time of the NAP Commission. And after I was promoted to lieutenant, I was assigned to the mayor's office as the commanding officer of the mayor's arson task force.
1: Let's go back to NAP Commission. I mean, I, I, I bet you the other guys in this room here don't know what the NAP Commission was. I get, um, their heads are shaking, yeah
4: the Knapp Commission came out of the department's failure to police itself adequately with regard to corruption, primarily in the gambling area. It was uh, under the control at that time of what they call plainclothes divisions or the plainclothes borough. And they would investigate these uh, allegations of corruption. And we had a fellow by the name of Frank Serpico. He reported it. It was not handled thoroughly. That eventually, with the assistance of a fellow named David Dirk, a lieutenant in the police department, went to the New York Times. And the cascading events that occurred quickly demonstrated that the five district attorneys didn't want or couldn't handle that huge investigation. As a result, uh, Whitman Knapp was selected, and he formed the Knapp Commission. Very few people are aware of the story, but nobody was indicted by the Knapp Commission except Knapp Commission and witnesses. They started to embellish on their tales, and that's what they were in many instances, So that that turned out not as successful as it was intended. But it turned around the police department in regard to vigorous investigations of any of these allegations. And today, I'm not an authority any longer on the policies of the department in this regard, but we paid precious little attention in comparison to what we had done with regard to the gambling issue. It was under the Organized Crime Control Bureau, and I believe that's been disbanded as well. So from this point forward, I I would have to uh, defer any further questions on that subject to uh, men that are currently working in the area. Let
1: me ask you a question. See the movie Serpico? I did. How accurate? (laughs) Well...
4: Frank uh, Serpico and I were in school together in what they call the uh, criminal investigations course. I enjoyed Frank. He he was uh, entertaining. But Frank was never used, not once, to testify. Um, That was an unfortunate situation. Uh, Frank had apparently felt there was corruption in almost everyone he dealt with. The problem was it wasn't verified. There was no corroboration for it. And ultimately, he became, uh, from a prosecutorial standpoint, incredible. However, what Frank brought to the attention of the entire city, if, if not the world, was the fact, as I mentioned before, that the police department at that time had failed, terribly failed, to have policed itself in this regard.
1: I'm gonna change the subject a little bit, you know. You're you're a big history buff. And you told me a story about what we call the Dallas rule. Can you tell oh. the audience about that? It's <laughs> very embarrassing. Well, no, <laughs> it's not you.
4: My 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 grandfather at the time was a lieutenant in the Four One precinct and the tale comes What year is this though now oh no oh, i i i would say in the early 30s um a woman came in carrying a pistol it turned out she was a uh, a school teacher and found the pistol on a bus somebody had dropped it or left it there or whatever but she found it and as a good citizen walked into the station house with it now at the time <laughs> there was There wasn't any way of handling this other than to arrest her for the illegal possession of the firearm, which my grandfather did. Um, I'm certain a more judicious uh, approach could have been handled, but he chose to process the matter as the rule called for, so they had to change the rule in this case. I think today... You would use the the term affirmative defense, which certainly was appropriate for this poor woman. But that's the Dallas rule.
1: All right. And you gave me another story, too, about an Irishman who had a little bit of amnesia. You know, sometimes you watch some of the movies for 40s. Every other crime involves some amnesia. But you have a true story on that one.
4: Well, at the time, I was a police commissioner in Westchester County. And it was Christmas Eve, as I recall. I was in my office working, and uh, my secretary came in and said, there's a, there's a couple that want to speak to you. It was very unusual that they visit on Christmas Eve. She said that's pretty important to them. I asked God how I bring them into the office. And they were Irishmen, uh, Irish from Ireland, and it turns out <clears throat> that the man... 18 or 15 years earlier, had he was a resident of the town. He went missing. And he all of a sudden showed up at the door. And his story was he had fallen. He hit his head. He had no idea who he was. And he wound up in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. He, saw a, he was passing a bar and grill. I think the name was O'Reilly, and he changed his name to O'Reilly. He started working in a diner, and they allowed him to sleep upstairs. And for the rest of his time in Philadelphia, I'm talking 15 years, he slept in this cot. He befriended a local priest, and he volunteered and helped the priest on a regular basis. One day he slipped again, and again he struck his head. They wrapped him up and put him in his cot. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, he woke up. He recognized for the first time his correct name and where he lived. And now this is the story that's given to me. So I asked the fellow, I said, when you came back, he came back on a bus, when you came back to Westchester County, what was the first thing you did? He said, I went to the graveyard to find if my wife was still alive or buried there. (laughs) Nobody but an Irishman would think that and follow up with a story like that, and I believed him. At least I, I believed that he had a plausible story. I got telephone calls from all over the world, letters from all over the world, and because of the way the media handled it, I was the butt of the joke for believing it. But to this day, I say... He lost his job as a supervisor in the post office. He lost his pension. He had no money. His poor wife was penniless when this happened. He made no money out of any of this. There was no insurance. Uh, So, as I say, that was a plausible tale.
1: How long did he live after that? Do you have any idea? I don't know. No,
4: we lost contact. I used to see his wife in the morning at Mass.
1: All right, now let me ask you something. Right now, if a young man asked me whether he should become a police officer or not, I would say, listen, I don't think so. What would your advice be?
4: I was very proud of being a policeman as my father and his father before him. Today, things have changed. I think things will change back. But right now, it's, it's a perilous idea. I was in a situation, a terrible fight. A man went to kill his wife with a gun. It was two o'clock in the morning, and when the radio car, when the radio call came over, <clears throat> I was driving the car, and as it happened, I was right in front of the building. So my, my partner, my radio car partner, and I entered the building. Everything's on the fifth floor. We went all the way upstairs, and here's the man with the gun. I grabbed the gun, I grabbed his arm, and my partner and I started to struggle. My partner was a former prize fighter. That struggle in the apartment with the gun lasted over 12, maybe 15 minutes. We were thoroughly, absolutely exhausted. I was able to put handcuffs on him, take him downstairs, and put him in the radio car. He kicked out the windows, and he was so strong, he, by kicking the ceiling, he dented the roof of the car. Neither of us shot the man. But today, I would be in violation of department procedures because there's no doubt my hands came in contact at some time with his neck or his throat or his diaphragm. So, this is a situation that has to be carefully understood. Unless you're in this this policing, unless you're used to the situations that come so suddenly and so vigorously upon us, think carefully before you start making the rules of what a policeman can or cannot do. I would have been authorized to take his life, but I was not authorized to touch him in certain areas during a ferocious 15-minute battle.
1: Thank you. Yeah. You know, can you just explain, maybe some people in the audience, because I've seen it a few times, when somebody, when a guy is not 100%, he's got an adrenaline rush or something, the strength, that people can do things. You know, sometimes you say, well, why, why did they take this guy down? Or why did they knock him down? Or why did they put him down? But sometimes people could be, Dangerous if they have an adrenaline rush. Extraordinary. They're very fast. You don't expect
4: it many times. I had a situation where there was a woman that was on the other side of a huge living room. The officer was handling the family dispute. And within a moment, almost as if by catapult, she had crossed that entire room with a scissor and came right for the center of my face. I moved to the left, and I got sliced across my cheek. Had I not moved, or had I moved in the wrong direction, that blade would have gone right through my eye and into my brain. Now, the whole matter took a few seconds to happen, and yet she was so light, so docile, on the other side of the room, she appeared to pose no threat whatsoever. So here's a situation that develops in a heartbeat it comes from almost nowhere she was under the influence of narcotics there's no question about that that's what started the family quarrel but I, I, I would stress to any young officer do you you cannot not not for one moment let your guard down in a situation the problem is that you might handle 15 of these situations with no difficulty and you become lax and all of a sudden you're in a situ- in, in, in a condition that calls for vigilance your vigilance has been diminished you're tired it's late at night you have another sad story you've heard so many of them and all of a sudden it turns into tumult that can take your life in a moment
1: and i think that's worth saying because you know, I I think a lot of people who are writing up these rules or the press or whatever, they don't understand that the, 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 the pressure that's on the police officer in doing his or her job.
4: Well, certainly in this new rule where you cannot touch his neck or his throat or his diaphragm. And if you touch the neck or throat or diaphragm, and if there is no injury resulting from that, you're still in violation. Now, we got a 200-pound man. He may or may not have a knife, and you're trying to disarm him, quiet him down, there's no question he's under some kind of narcotic. He might be even a a, a terrific athlete. Are you going to tell me that you can engage in a hand to hand combat battle knowing you're not going to touch his neck or his throat or his diaphragm? By the way, I have to speak to a doctor about that. Where is the diaphragm? <laughs>
1: Well, who comes up with these rules? Where'd they come from?
4: Well, they come up with, with people that that they, they mean to do well. They mean to calm the public's angst. But they have to sit down with men and women that are in this job long enough to understand what we're up against before pen goes to paper.
1: Well, let me ask you something. I mean, when I grew up and and when I was in the service of military policemen, if I told somebody to do something, they did it. Now it seems like you can just, the, the the compliance, do you want to comment on that? Well, uh, there's,
4: there's the question, and it annoys me. Have you had the talk with your son? As if this has to be explained. I don't know one policeman that didn't have a talk with his son. When you are encountered by a policeman, comply. Failure to comply meets consequences that justifiably fall to your feet.
1: Let's add this on a light note. Do you have a funny story to give us?
4: There, there, were, there, were, there were episodes, as there were always are.
1: The first time I was a desk officer in Harlem,
4: it was the 3-2 precinct, and two officers came in and placed a human right leg on top of the desk to be vouched. <laughs> <laughs> there was no explanation as to what happened to the rest of the body. But it was found in the street, and they thought the best thing to do would bring it into Lieutenant Dallas for him to figure it out.
1: (laughs) All right. Arthur Dallas, thank you very much for joining us today on Connor's Corner.
4: Thank you, counsel. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic
1: Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB bq.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now is an old friend of the show, Tony LoBianco. Welcome to Connors Corner.
2: Hi, my pleasure to be here, my friend. Love to be with friends.
1: Yeah, now I understand you got a new film coming out, or it's it's out on Netflix. What's going on?
2: No, no, it's uh, untitled. Untitled. uh, We just finished, and uh, it's I don't know where it's going to go. It's a movie, movie. I believe it uh will find life in some theater, uh but as we all know it, uh when they when we do that it eventually uh and very shortly ends up on television. So you can start you start in a the movie late theater and if you get lucky you play it for maybe three, four weeks if you're really lucky, and then it winds up on television. So it's uh that's been the history of uh of film. So uh, anyway, it's a marvelous film, I think, uh, with uh, Ray Romano. Ray is not only the starring in the movie; he is also the director and the writer and producer. So I love that, and 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 he's a he's a you know, wonderful fellow and a wonderful actor. And uh, you'll see some stuff you haven't seen, obviously, in the television shows uh, in this in this film. There's also uh Lori Medcalf and she's a fine actress uh, she has her own television series and now she was on but the one with Rosanna uh and uh, she was the opposite gal now she's got her own series um, and and a young man uh, uh Sebastian uh, Maniscalco who's a comedian that uh oh. was very own uh, uh around and, and uh, the script is very good so you got you got you got your humor. It's a it's a what do they call it? a a comedy? What, what do they call they call a combination comedy drama dramedy? I guess that's it, a dramedy. So and it's unnamed. Uh, uh, it was called Mister Russo at one time, and I think I think Ray wants to put uh, Queens in the title because that's where he's from and that's where the movie takes place and we shot it. We filmed it there. And so, so that's where it is now. They're still shooting. They have about, I think, about another, oh, well, I would say 10 days to go. And then they have to edit it naturally and how long that takes. And then they have to find a venue for it. Uh, and I think I heard Ray talking about uh, film festivals and so on. And with this COVID me- uh, insanity, uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, you put it in a theater, what is it going to be? 20 people in there, 50 people and there, it, it's all ridiculous. And, and so everything is up in the air as, as far as what anybody is doing, or how they can do it and so on, you know, and so as far as release date, you know, it's always a all timing, depending what's happening in the world and what's happening, where people's attention are is, you know, you could, you could uh, re- release a fine, excellent movie. Nobody is watching. So because they're distracted with 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 something else, I remember when roots the te- big television world was released. there was a storm outside there was a big big- uh, it was a snowstorm that lasted a long time and the people saw roots they all stayed indoors and they and they, they, they saw roots and it was a good it was a good product too but but it's all about timing and how you you know what theaters you put them in where uh, if the theaters have capacity or not. It, it's everything is up in the air. And the whole country is up in the air,
1: to say the least. Yeah. Let me ask you, going back in time, French Connection, how long yep. was that playing at theaters? Because I think that played forever. Oh yeah. That well,
2: yeah, back in that's nineteen seventy. Uh things weren't weren't t- too radical as they are now. Um and uh it was a picture of its kind, one of its kind and exciting and it had a great word of mouth. It was a great film. It won five Academy Awards, so I mean that's when that's when we were, when we were making movies. I mean real movies, uh, uh, not not to take away from the the, the uh, Cagney Bogart years and the Edward G. Robinson years when they were making fine movies as well, uh, and Laurence Olivier and what have you. So, uh, but I mean for 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 a time, uh, the seventies uh, were were very very good movies. Being made and, and French Connection did play. I, I don't know. If it's, it's still playing. Everybody still sees it. It's, it's celebrating this year. It's fiftieth year, which is astounding.
1: Yeah, I didn't and, realize uh, that. But yes, you add it up. That's what it is.
2: It's fiftieth year, and, and uh, there are only a few of us left. You
1: know. Uh, well, I mean, the film they, really holds up if you watch it now, and it's it's shown all the time on the on the different absolutely. cable networks and whatever but it really holds up very well and all of you guys did a great job in that and you, mm. know, you know and let me ask you when you guys did this you weren't all stars no
2: no 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 uh, not at all um it was my second film uh and and uh you know Gina Gino act, acted all the time yeah, Gene, you know Gene was doing movies uh, left and right but he he was not uh you know the the well, you're you're right. Nobody was stars then, and and it, it was. Nobody was getting paid the kind of money that you get paid now. Believe me, uh, well that's true of everything, isn't? It? Baseball players and
1: <laughs> you know,
2: football, everything amazing. Uh, but uh, it was, and again, a, a good group of people, well cast, and and people who knew each other. Uh, it's just like you see the movie I just did with Ray. Everybody got was very friendly on the, on the film. Was real family. Everybody cared about each other, uh, and and the crew, and the crew too was excellent. An excellent crew who was uh, respectful and and on time and doing their job and and everything. And so that was true of, of the of the whole shoot. Uh, no problem. No prima donnas. No. Nonsense, no, nothing like that that interfered with anything except being there for the film. And that's the way we were on, on Seven, Ups, uh, Seven Ups and French Connection. Both those movies I was in and, and both of those films had, had family oriented. Keep in mind, Sonny Grasso, the late, great Sonny Grasso, whose stories they were, uh, French Connection and, and Seven Ups, was a uh, first grade detective and, and a good friend, uh, a good friend of all of us. So and he had a great, that kind of uh, personality that had, a, had a warmth and, and leadership. And, uh, and of course, uh, Billy freaking the director As young as he was. He really put his stamp on the film. There was no. Pulling around, no understanding, no misunderstanding that he was not the director. And he, he was a young man of 30, something th- early thirties. And, uh, he had conviction and and uh he knew what he was doing and and I knew immediately as soon as that as soon as I saw the uh, as I was shooting it, not know was I was in, a, I was in a, a fine film, but after it was done uh and I was one of the first people ever to see a preview, I called gene Hackman and told him he was going to win the academy award immediately uh and and it's just there you know when you you know when we were when we were working on the movie we we'd stay together even after we shoot, we go play basketball together. Uh we'd go you know, hang out together. We were friends. And it shows uh, that kind of, of, of help everybody helping to make the movie what it what it is, you know? And I'm for that a hundred percent. When I'm directing I'm 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 your best friend, you know. Uh and i I allow everybody to be as creative as they can possibly be. You know all their dreams, all their all their thoughts uh, I, I, I want them I want them to to be creative and and, and be part of the uh, the creation of what happens on the screen
1: you know you, you brought something out ray Romano's is directing this how hard is it to be a director and an actor in the same production well it's hard it is
2: hard indeed and and, and the writer as well and uh you you have to know everything as a director you know you have to know everything uh, what I mean by everything is you have to be ready for disaster. <laughs> you have to have five ideas in your head at all times you know you have to have you have to know how to take care of problems you have to know about keep on budget you have to know uh that those are all those technical things but, but as far as an, an artist is concerned, you have to have such a vision of of uh of of uh, minute detail. In a, movie, in, a, in a movie script, knowing that it isn't just the words, it's a reaction to the words, it's, it's the intention. Be an, an, even though you're speaking certain words, there's another intention. So there's so much. And then as you're acting and directing, then you have to also trust, uh, uh, you know, your cinematographer uh, uh, and your cameraman to... Uh, to. Uh, uh, Follow your instructions and listen to him. Uh, you know, listen to a better idea if he has it, or or if you come up with with an idea of, of a shot that you want want to do, and he and he has the experience and know how how to get that. Uh, it, everything has to be done with with not only quality, insight, and an eye on the budget, and and uh, and and allowing other things to happen in a move in a in a scene that you didn't expect. That's better than so on. Uh you know, you, you have to guide and, and, and be flexible and allow and, and, and see so many things. And then once you shoot it and you're in it, you know, and you've got it all set and directed and then you're acting it, well then you have to go take a look at it. Thank God we have that ability now to be able to <clears throat> go go take a look at what you just shot and uh see what you want to do if you want to you know, shoot it over, or do this, or you miss it, whatever it is. You know, so it's it's an all inclusive uh, thing that I personally love to do as well. I mean, I like to direct, uh, write, and act in in a thing in a thing too. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's it's something that I that that I love. I mean, I'm used to doing one man shows a a lot. You know, uh, when I do LaGuardia, Guardia, act it, direct it, write it, produce it. Uh, you know, and and be on stage alone for an hour and a half. It's a uh, feat, and anything that's difficult, I'm interested in. Uh, and and the the more tough it is, the the best. And you and you if you can accomplish it, the better you are. It's all about it's all about getting it right. As far as I'm concerned, it's all about something overcoming, overcoming the most difficult, and that's. To me, what people go, oh my, oh wow. Oh, how about a standing ovation? How about a, how about How about an insight that we never saw before? How about a revelation? That's what you're there for. Uh, to me, that's what I'm there for. I, I'm there for the thinking how I can inspire an audience so that they're moved so much so that the, when, they, when they leave the theater, they're not talking about popcorn. They're talking about what they just saw and what experience they just had and so on. And you just can't do it by accident. You have to plot and plan and and, and 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 look for those moments that are going to give people insight into life so they can either fix it life or or learn from it or learn not, not what not to do. But to me, that's that's what it's all about.
1: Tony, let me ask you, you said it was the second shoot film was the honeymoon killers the first one i just saw that on turner classic the other day
2: yeah yeah that's another another amazing another amazing movie that's lasted now that was uh in 68 and uh came out i believe in sixty nine. and uh
1: if somebody saw you in that they wouldn't think you're necessarily a nice guy right now you were pretty cold
2: (laughs) well you know it's interesting this business is it's all crazy
1: look uh,
2: you you have to be crazy and 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 be lucky and fortunate. It's all about timing. The same thing of releasing a movie. You can have the best movie if it doesn't get the proper release at the proper time with people uh, who are willing to go to it and and not distracted by a, a war or or some other tragedy, a a gas a gas shortage or a war in Israel or you name it. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, so you, you, you're you dealing with all that. And as far as acting and getting a part is the same thing, because as a result of the Honeymoon Killers playing that role with a Spanish accent, I almost didn't get French Connection because they thought I had an accent. <laughs> <laughs> and it happened to be that uh, the that casting person knew that I was a New York actor. And that's how I got the, the French connection. So, I mean, that's all crazy. Listen, when they did the seven ups, you know what they the advertisement for that part was? We want a Tony LoBianco type. <laughs> yeah, that's how crazy life is. <laughs> I said, hey, yeah, hey, what about the real thing? <laughs> you can know, that makes this stuff up. I, mean, I can go on and on and on about those things in my career. That, uh, stories stories about uh, uh, amazing things that are going on on a broadway show in the lead role with no rehearsal no rehearsal impossible story but i mean it goes on and on like that and and uh and and then yanks 3 detroit nothing in which i was given an obie uh which is an off broadway award uh for best performance uh when i went on that uh, the uh, director uh, said to me, "What do you? why are you pitching left-handed? I said, because I'm left-handed. He said, but well, do you have your back to the audience? I said, well, I'll go to the other side of the stage. He said, well, that's the weakest side of the stage. I said, okay, so I'll pitch right-handed. He said, what? You can pitch both left-handed and right-handed as a professional Yankee pitcher? I said, yeah, I trained myself to do that. I mean, nobody can. You know, these are uh, feats. When I talk about feats and things that are difficult, that's what I'm talking about. Listen, I played the heavyweight champ of the world, Rocky Marciano. The old, only heavyweight undefeated, 49 victories without a loss. I played him as a fighter and I'm le- I fight left-handed. And I had to turn around and fight right-handed to play the heavyweight champ of the world. I mean, these—that's a feat. Now you
1: used to box in the golden gloves, didn't you?
2: Right, exactly, exactly. I boxed in the golden gloves as a kid, uh, sixteen, seventeen, and uh, and club fighting and all that jazz. But uh, but th- those are feats. A One man show being on stage alone for an hour and a half is a feat. It, that is a difficult thing. Now it's going to be even more of a feat when I do it in three or four years. <laughs> when I'm when I'm. Not supposed to be alive because of my age, but I'm that's my plan. So anything that's anything that's difficult is the only way for me to to deal with with uh, uh, a project. That's the that's what's important. Good is not good for me. Very good is not good enough. None of that. It's to me, you, I, the pressure you put on yourself, and I don't even consider it pressure. I don't think of anything that I do that's difficult that has anything to do with pressure. You know what I mean? I'm in. I, I, I had a stick. Uh, uh, well, I had, a, I had a, a softball team for. I had 16 years a softball team. I won eight championships and I came in second all the other times. And when I pitched and managed the teams, now as a pitcher, you know I watched Sandy Koufax uh, when I was a kid. Not only did I watch him. I played against him at, in high school. Uh, I was the last person to bat against him. I was late for a game because I was doing something with this uh, declamation contest. And when I, when I went into the game, they, I, they said, well, I said, what's going on? They said, this guy's throwing a no-hitter against us. This is in high school. I said, put me in, put me in. So I put, they put me in. I was the last batter to face Sandy Koufax in high school. And I hit a fly ball off him that was caught but I hit a fly ball. I hit the ball. You understand? So watching Sandy Koufax as a professional, I'm watching him pitch. And I'm as a pro, as a a Dodger, and I see how upset he is after he throws a strike. And one wonders why he's upset. Because it was not the strike he wanted to throw. It wasn't the one that was on the outside tip of the plate. It was more in the in the closer to the center, and that upset him. That's the way you have to conduct your life.
1: Well, and Tony, to me, I'm sorry we we are running out of time on this, but please get back it. to us, and I'd like to talk to you about the London Institute in a few weeks or month or oh, so.
2: Please, is that a deal? Please, that absolutely. Let's let's do that. All right. I'm, I'm I ran I ran on with this uh, this acting junk, but uh,
1: no, no, no. no. I think. Personally, I'm, well, uh, you know, course, I'm fascinated you know. by actors and directors and whatever. So, and I think a lot of our listeners are too. But Tony, thank you for being on the show. Come back anytime, but maybe we'll talk in about a month. We'll try to schedule something in June.
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Tony Bye. LoBianco. Other thank other you. Things. God bless. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed fifteen thousand dollars a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivans, lawyers, can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free, comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.